Michael's here. Anybody else here? I don't know. I thought that there maybe you are just zombies or something. No, it's so good to see you this morning. Um, I'm so happy to be here today. Um, should be because I pastor here, but I enjoy Sundays with you. And I enjoy Sundays being together. I enjoy Sundays where we worship the Lord together, where we open His Word and we feel His presence here with us as we hear from Him in His Word. Uh, it's just a good time. Where else on earth would you want to be? Don't tell me the lake. Don't tell me the, don't tell me the deer stand. Don't tell me the golf course. You don't get that anywhere else but here. So you are in the best place you could possibly be today. And I happen to think that Cherokee Baptist Church is the best place you could be today. So I am glad you're here today. If you're with us and you're visiting, um, there is a QR code in the bulletin. You can scan that if you, if you know how to do that. And it will take you to Isaac Hewn said on our row. Our row's empty. If you know how to scan a QR code, visitors, um, would love to have you scan that. And there's a, a connection card down at the bottom of the page that, that comes up. So definitely want you to do that. Um, also, just a couple of announcements. Uh, start not this Wednesday, because that's the 31st. September 7th, so that's a week from Wednesday, we will resume our regular Wednesday night fall schedule. Well, it's one that we keep in the fall and in the spring. We don't do it in the summer. So we have a 5.45 meal in the fellowship hall, followed by 6.15 children activities. The youth group meets. Ladies' Bible study happens at that time. And then at 6.30, there's prayer meeting. Uh, Speaking of the ladies' Bible study, uh, that will also resume on September 7th. And the study for this particular semester is The Well-Watered Woman by Gretchen Saffles. So if you're interested in participating in that particular study, uh, then make sure you reach out to Carrie Owen for more details about that. Finally, our next round of blessing boxes will ship October 15th. And if you have been a part of this before, then you know that there's a list of requested donations on the wall out in the foyer, as well as a box for you to put those donations. We have any other announcements to make? All right, before we uh, continue on in our service, uh, you may have looked at your bulletin and noticed that we have a baptism today. Today we're baptizing, baptizing, (laughs) that too, whatever you want to call it, that's what we're doing. We're baptizing Ella Graves this morning. Uh, Ella made a profession of faith uh, on Youth Sunday uh, when uh, the youth took, uh, contributed to the service and Jared preached. She came forward on that Sunday and professed faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and she'll be joining our church later on this morning at the end of the service. But I did want to remind you that uh, we are, uh, we as Baptists, we observe what's called two observances. Uh, and it's the, the Lord's Supper and it's baptism. Both of those have deep significance and meaning for us as believers. Baptism is the one we'll see this morning. And so as you see what, what, what happens to Ella, uh, Jared, he's going to baptize her. He's going to say, buried with him by baptism into death. Now that celebrates, that, that reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. So Christ literally died for Ella on the cross. In fact, he died in Ella's place. When she puts her faith in him, it is as if she died and was buried with him. 
But we know that Christ didn't stay buried. Jared will raise her up out of the water and say, raised to walk in newness of life. That means the old man has gone, the new has come. She is a new creature. The water is symbolic of of being washed clean. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. It's a celebration. It's her first uh, public um, step of obedience after her profession of faith. And then by it, she'll be uh, fully able then to join our church at the end of the service. So, Jared and, and, and Ella, you'll come now and we will baptize. <laughs> I think the heater's broken, Shannon. <laughs> so, I feel like I've been here before recently. Um, and uh, that's an awesome thing. I do praise God for that. This is Ella, my daughter whom most of y'all know. Um, Ella has professed faith in Christ um, right down here one Sunday morning. It was a glorious day, and uh, now she comes for baptism, and she does have uh, a little bit to share with y'all. Apparently this, uh, she's nervous. what she wrote. Ella says, I've lived in a good, loving Christian family my whole life. I've always believed in what I was taught, um, that I and all humans are sinners and spiritually dead since the fall in the garden, but God sent his son to die for those sins so that we could have a relationship with him. I realized that I needed forgiveness, I wanted to be closer to God, and it wasn't enough to just believe those things. It is about knowing Him personally and walking with Him daily, and that's what I wanted to do. From now on, did I say it right? Ella says yes. So, Ella Graves, based on what you have written and I just read, um, you have made a profession of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I ask that you commit to following him all the days of your life. Yes. She says yes. So, Ella Graves, my daughter and my sister in Christ, I baptize you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him unto death in baptism, raised with him in newness of life. While our musicians come and prepare to lead us in worship. If you would please uh, stand. I want to say a quick prayer for Ella and then we will uh, read together our call to worship. 
Father, how grateful we are for new life in Jesus Christ, where before we were dead in our trespasses and sins and unable to do anything, you raised us to life in Christ. What a glorious uh, thing to have happen to unworthy, undeserving, um, hateful, spiteful enemies. But out of your love, you did that. How grateful we are, Father. We pray, Lord, that Ella's life would day by day reflect the glory of her Savior. And that day by day she would grow in the, the, the grace and knowledge of her Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that she would take seriously the great commandment and the great commission. That she would be a faithful member of whatever church she is in all the days of her life. And at the end of her days, she could hear from her Savior, Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's say our call to worship together. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Let's worship together.
Good morning. I have a question for you guys. Has the Tooth Fairy ever come to your house? Yes. Yes? Well, you're not going to believe this, but the Tooth Fairy used to come to my house when I was a little girl. Um, mm -hmm. hmm? No, I think it was the Tooth Fairy. Um, because she came every time, well, I guess it was a she. I always thought it was a she, but I'm not even sure anymore. Uh, but anyway, um, she came to my house. I'd put my tooth under my pillow, and um, I was thinking about that this week, and I heard a story about a little girl named Diana, and the tooth fairy came to her house. She'd lost quite a few teeth, and every time she lost a tooth, the tooth fairy left her $2, and she was really happy uh, because $2 was a lot of money for a little girl that age. Well, one day, she went to visit uh, a friend of hers named Diana, and they were talking, and Diana had lost a tooth, and Diana said the tooth fairy had been to her house and left her $10. And this, this little girl was really um, sort of upset. And Diana said that the tooth fairy left $10 every time she lost a tooth. So Diana's mother walked in the room. And this little girl said, uh, Ms. Grasser, would you mind calling my mom and telling her which tooth fairy you use? <laughs> well, that reminded me of something. Who can read? Who can read this word? Anybody? Contentment. Contentment, yes. Have you heard this word recently? You have? When did you hear it? Anybody? Well, let me help you out. Um, Brother Shannon has been uh, preaching through the book of 1 Timothy, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, was writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and um, one of the things he said is that we should be content with the things that God has given us. You see, this little girl was happy or satisfied or content. That's what content means, happy or satisfied with what you have. She was content with $2 until she saw that her friend got $10. And then she wasn't content anymore. She wanted what the other little girl had. And so the Apostle Paul teaches us uh, through the Bible, that we should be happy, satisfied, content with the things that God has given us, given us. Because he said, we came into this life with nothing. I wasn't born pulling a little red wagon. And I'm not going to leave this life and take my car with me. We don't, we come with nothing and we leave with nothing. So, if we have food and clothing and a roof over our heads, we should be content 
with all that God gives us. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you this morning. Help us, Lord, to be content with what you have done for us, what you have given to us. Father, we just praise you and glorify your name. We thank you for the way you teach us through the words of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
you would please take your copy of God's Word. Turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, be the final few verses, verses 17 to 21. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you should find one in the pew somewhere around you. Turn to the back, find page 165, and you will, you should find 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 to 22 there. This is the final sermon from 1 Timothy. And uh, I was talking with someone this morning said that just really enjoyed it. And I want you to know as your pastor, it has been a great joy to preach this particular book of the Bible. I think it's, it's been what our church needs to hear right now. I firmly believe that. Um, and I pray and trust that God has used it for His glory in your lives. So our final sermon is, is entitled, Contending for What Really Matters. I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21, and this is God's Word. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, your scripture is pure milk, pure meat. There's no uh, added byproducts. There's no preservatives. It's exactly what we need. It's written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's written for our edification. It's written to seal and, and to um, in, encourage the saints. It is written such that its truths confront those who are lost, confronts them with their sin, their need for Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would take this next few minutes, that you would use it for your glory, edify the saints, call in the lost. We pray for the sake of your Son who gave his life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in this final section of Timothy, we find Paul being Paul. He's just being who he is. He's loving the church. He's longing for God to be glorified in her. He's leading his, his protege, his friend, his ministry partner, Timothy, well. He's giving practical instruction to a particular group in the church. He's reminding Timothy, once again, why he was left in Ephesus, which is to confront false teaching in the church and to teach the faith, the doctrine of Christ diligently. And he's leaving Timothy and the church with the hope of the gospel as the final thought in their mind. True to form, and with these things in mind, Paul closes the letter with directives. 
to the rich, to Timothy, and to the church. First, we turn to the rich. Well, we might ask a question. Paul says to the rich. Well, who, who is Paul talking about? What, what exactly does he mean by the word rich? How do, we, how do we answer that question? Well, maybe we should answer it from sort of an American Western perspective. According to a leading financial magazine, anyone with a net worth of $2.6 million or more is considered rich. 30 years ago, it was $1.9 million or more. But that group of people, I would think, in the world, especially the Western world, is relatively small. It's a small slice of the population of the Western world. So what if we look at it from a different perspective? What if we shrunk the world down to 100 people? Well, 15 people would make less than $2 a day. That is less than $730 a year. 56 of the 100 would make between $2 and $10 a day. So between $730 and $3,650 a year. 13 would make between $10 and $20 a day. Between $3,650 and $7,300 a year. Nine would make from $20 to $50 a day, which is from $7,300 to $18,250 a year. Six would make from $50 to $90 a day, which is $18,250, upwards toward $32,850 a year. And one out of the 100 would make over $90 a day. And that's more than $32,850 a year. So suddenly we've gone from a Western perspective to a worldly perspective. And in doing that, we've gone from very few of us, if any, are rich, to perhaps all of us are rich. So that still begs the question, who is really rich? Now, I did this on purpose. I did this for a reason. Because we can look at a text of Scripture and think we know what the word means. If we, if we don't understand truly what the word means, then the application falls flat. So be careful not to assume that you automatically know the meaning of words in Scripture. This word for rich in the Greek is the word plusios. And it simply means having an abundance of earthly possessions that exceeds normal experience. Now, personally, I would not consider myself rich. But when I go to Haiti, I'm richer than Croesus. So I I think plusios, this word rich, um, I think you have to understand what it means and what it means in the context of where you live and then apply it. In that way. One thing I do want to stress here is that Paul has already addressed those who want to be rich, who fall into all kinds of problems. He's not addressing this group of people. It's a different group than what we find uh, Paul addressing in verses 5 and then verses 9 and 10. The people he's now addressing, they are rich because of God's gracious providence in their life, not because they were overcome by a love of money. They're not money hungry. God has blessed them with riches. Now it's also worth saying as well, riches aren't inherently bad. They are not. They are what we might call amoral, amoral. There's nothing morally good or bad about them. They are amoral. However, they can become an idol, but that's not always true. It doesn't have to be that way. So in this section of Scripture, Paul's instruction demonstrates 
that he knows what riches can do to a person. Look again in verse 17. Riches cause, can cause a person to focus on this present world to the neglect of the next ones. Why he says, those who are rich, instruct them not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So they cause to focus on this present world. Riches can also cause a person to become conceited. Paul says, instruct them not to be conceited. Conceited means here high-minded, haughty, arrogant. Describe someone who regards themselves as better than others. And then finally, riches cause a person to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That's why Paul says, instruct them, verse 17, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You see, when you hitch your hope to riches, it makes you unsettled. Because there's doubt in your future. What's going to happen one day to the next? Am I always going to have these riches? And in, in a certain sense, there's, there's some dependence on chance for help. So that's why Paul says to the rich, contend for real treasure. Contend for real treasure. Well, that begs the question, what is real treasure? Well, look again in verse 17. Real treasure is not... Of this present world. One can be rich in this present world and not have real treasure. Real treasure also doesn't make one conceited. Rather, real treasure produces humility and thanksgiving. And real treasure is certain, it's settled, it's never in doubt, it's never dependent on chance for help. Thieves cannot break in and steal it, and moth and rust cannot destroy it. So how do I find this treasure? Where do I find it? Where do I look? Well, I want to, I want to point out one specific word here that is crucial. In verse 17, it is the word instruct. Instruct. Now, why do I point that out? Because what Paul tells Timothy to tell those who are rich in this present world how to instruct them. The question is, will they listen? Will they listen to instruction? Will they receive it as authoritative? I remember Jesus had a man that came to him who was rich. and Teacher, tell me how I may may have eternal life. And he says, well, keep the commandments. He says, I've, I've kept the commandments. And Jesus says, well, go and sell all you have and come and follow me. It was authoritative. And, and, and the scripture records that the man, deeply saddened, went away because he was very rich. See, you can receive, you can hear instruction. There's a difference between hearing it and receiving it and regarding it as authoritative. So this is the instruction. To contend for the, to, to the rich, contend for real treasure. Hope in God. Notice Paul says, don't fix your hope, verse 17, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You see, when God is the ultimate hope of the rich, it puts everything else in perspective. Because God richly supplies everything. 
And why does he supply? Paul says, to enjoy. He richly supplies everything for our enjoyment as a blessing from him. Now, stop and think about this. How freeing is that? That riches are amoral. They're not bad or good. They can become an idol, but you also can use them for your own enjoyment and then not become an idol and, and still glorify and honor God. So, and and I, the reason I say isn't that freeing is that I, I don't think Moses felt bad about being rich because he had things in the proper perspective. He was freed from the love of money and riches. So how do I hope in God? Verse 18, Paul says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now again, we see that word, instruct. And I pause again to make the point a second time. Timothy is told, this is what you're to say. And so he says this to these rich people. How they are to hope in God. And the question is, will they listen? Not just hear the words, but will they receive them as authoritative? And if, and if they will, then, then here's the instruction. And notice what Paul does. He describes what they are to do to hope in God in two ways. He, ta- he tells them what to do and what to be. What to do and what to be. First he says, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. This is the practice. Do good. Do that which benefits others. I'm sorry, I skipped. Instruct them to do good. That's the do. Do good. Do that which benefits others. But there's also, to go along with the do, there's a to be. It's more... More than just practice, it's about the kind of person you are. He says, be rich in good works. Not just nice thoughts. I want to do good, and I feel like I'm I'm thinking good things toward people that are down on their luck. Paul says, don't do that. Don't just think nice thoughts. There should be concrete actions. He says, be generous. Be generous with your money. And he says, be ready to share. Now, ready to share, that's pretty straightforward. It means to share. But this Greek word, I think you'll recognize, or the, 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 the root of this Greek word is koinonia. How many of you at one point in your Christian life have heard the term koinonia? Okay, some of you need to, I need to teach y'all how to raise hands. There we go. Okay, good. Koinonia simply means fellowship. And so when Paul says to be ready to share, he's talking about be the kind of person who wants to do good, to concretely do good, and then to do it in a way that actually promotes a sense of community or fellowship. It's not just sharing money or possessions with others, but it's also sharing yourself as well. So there's this sense of a relational connection. There's there's sympathy there. There's compassion. And if you stop and think about it, it's exactly what Christ would do. He wouldn't just say, here, take this, off with you. No, Jesus came near. He was incarnated. And, And he did the kind of ministry that demonstrates this. So we could also say when when. 
when you're when you want to do good and be generous and be ready to share, in, in doing all of that together, it's it's almost like well, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and there's incarnational ministry going on. Now, I want you to notice something. Paul tells the the folks. Uh, not to be conceited in verse 17. But do you see that verse 18 is the remedy for the conceit in verse 17? As God has richly supplied those who are rich with all things to enjoy, the rich in turn richly supply the needs of the members of the fellowship. So how is this contending for real treasure? Verse 19, Paul says, Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. See, doing what Paul instructs in verse 18 is a present investment that pays future dividends. It's working for a payoff in the world to come. It's storing up, as Jesus says, treasures in heaven. Now, when you hear the words, a good foundation for the future, don't hear Paul telling people that your good works will produce salvation. In other words, if you do all these things and you know your future is settled, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying salvation produces good works. In order to understand this fully, we need to add the final part of verse 19 so we get the complete picture. And that says again, so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now I believe that when Paul says life indeed in verse 19, that he's referencing The hope in God that leads to good works in verse 18. Now follow me here. When the rich practice the instructions in verse 18, they are experiencing now in this life, in part what they will experience in full in the next. They're taking hold of eternal life in this world. And that experience of eternal life in this world is a good foundation, a a taste of, a, a down payment for what they'll experience in the next, which will include not only the full experience of eternal life, but also the enjoyment of the treasure they have stored up for themselves in heaven. So Timothy, to the rich, tell them to contend for real treasure. Tell them to hope in God. Next, Paul moves to Timothy. He says, Timothy, contend for real truth. He says in verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Contend for real truth. So that begs the question, what is real truth? Well, it's the apostolic faith. It's what Jude verse 3 calls the faith that was once for all delivered, handed down to the saints. Talking about apostolic doctrine, Christian doctrine. You can look at it like this. I don't know if you can read that or not. Perhaps you can. This is the Apostles' Creed. Now, today was a special day for Ella. She she was baptized today. But when this creed was penned, it was penned for a particular purpose so that those who were going to be baptized could make sure that they understood the deposit of faith, what had been entrusted to the Christian church, the doctrine that makes a person a Christian. They believe it. Now I'm going to read this. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third, he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, which is to say the true church, true Christian church of all times and places. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It's not talking about big C Catholic. I believe in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That is a... That's what's been entrusted to the church. That's what was entrusted to Timothy. Now, this is one of a number of creeds we could add to a list of what is real truth. There's the Nicene Creed. There's the Athanasian Creed. And if you've never read these, I want to assure you, they, they, as you start reading them, they may seem a little overwhelming, but read them and give yourself time to chew on each part. And it's well worth your time to read and understand these creeds. They enrich your spiritual life. But suffice it to say this, real truth is the spiritual heritage that has been entrusted to the Christian. At a minimum, all Christians must believe the central truths summed up in statements like the Apostles' Creed. So Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, contend for real truth. How does Timothy do that? Guard the deposit of faith. Sorry, my voice is a little bit shocked. Guard the deposit of faith. Guard what has been entrusted to you. That, what is um, um, translated as guard what has been entrusted to you, that's, that's one word in the Greek. Um, so it, it has the sense of that Timothy has been given something, has been entrusted into his care. And what he's been given is Christian doctrine, the deposit of faith. And Timothy is to make sure and guard this deposit of faith so closely that it isn't lost or damaged. You know, that's why creeds were written in the first place. Because there were heresies and church councils formed and, and met to make sure and address these heresies and to give summations of what people were to believe. Timothy must guard the deposit of faith because teaching a lost or damaged deposit of faith will do great harm to the church. So Timothy, guard the faith. How, Timothy might ask. Well, Paul tells him. He says, avoiding, verse 20, worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Oops. Timothy is to guard the deposit of faith by focusing on the the deposit of faith and not the talking heads of so-called knowledge. You see, they engage... Paul says, in worldly and empty chatter, it's idle and foolish talk and it is irrelevant to the Christian. What they teach is, and this is the word for opposing arguments, the Greek word, they teach the antithesis of knowledge, of real truth. But they parade that falsehood around under the pseudonym, the false name, knowledge. So Paul tells Timothy, you avoid these men. Deliberately turn away from them in their teachings. Well, why? Doesn't our faith have an answer for all the questions, everything in their falsehood? Of course it does. But Paul doesn't want Timothy to spend an inordinate amount of time dealing with their arguments. Instead, Paul says, instruct them to stop teaching that stuff. And then, Timothy, you avoid them and guard the deposit of faith. 
Why does Timothy need to guard the deposit of faith? Well, Paul has talked at length about this. But he gives Timothy a final why for guarding the deposit. Look, verse 21. Which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. This is Timothy's why for guarding the deposit. Some have professed this false doctrine. They have put their faith in it. They have built their lives around it. And thus some have gone away from the faith. They have committed apostasy. So Paul tells Timothy, you contend for real truth. You guard the deposit of faith. Finally, to the church. Contend for real transformation. Now you're thinking, Brother Shannon, there's no mention of church in this verse. Well, when Timothy said, Paul says to Timothy at the end of verse 21, grace be with you. In, in uh, Cherokee, Texas English, it'd be grace be to y'all. So that tells us Paul's not writing only to Timothy but to the church. So we can correctly assume that Paul intends for the letter that was written to Timothy to be read and heard by the church. So Paul tells Timothy, contend for real transformation. And that transformation is not just personal, it's corporate. So how do we contend for real transformation? We do so by living wholly dependent on grace. Grace we define as unmerited favor. Now again, this is why Timothy must guard what has been entrusted to him. Because the gospel message is a message of grace. And that must never be lost. But we often think of salvation by grace as we should. But have we fallen perhaps into the trap of thinking that grace is only necessary for our justification. For when we first came to Christ. That's not what Paul understands. Paul understands how important grace is for the Christian. As we sang this morning, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Here's another way to think of the word grace. Take the first letter of, of uh, take the five letters of, of grace, G-R-A-C-E, and here, God's riches at Christ's expense. It wasn't just that we received God's riches at Christ's expense when we first came to Christ. It's that that opened the floodgates of grace for all of our life in Christ. And we need it for all of our life in Christ. And Paul wants Timothy to understand that. Timothy must in no way forget grace as he ministers to the church at Ephesus. Because listen, only the gospel of grace is able to take a person who is rich in this present world and turn that person into someone who is able to do what verse 18 commands. You see, grace-fueled effort transforms. John Stott, in his great commentary on 1 Timothy, says this, The Christians of the Ephesian church would not be able to, in their own strength, reject error and fight for truth. To run from evil and pursue goodness. To renounce covetousness and cultivate contentment and generosity. And in these responsibilities to remain faithful Christians to the end. Only divine grace could keep them. So at the letter's conclusion as at its beginning in chapter 1 verse 2. The apostle wishes for them above all else 
an experience of the transforming and sustaining grace of God. Paul says to Timothy, to, I'm sorry, to the church, contend for real transformation. Live wholly dependent on grace. I want to close with this example. Think about how, and I want to illustrate how important grace is. Do you think about obedience to God's commands as a car? Think of it as a car. Think of grace as the gasoline. Now, one time my brother drove a diesel pickup truck, and he pulled up to the, the, the gas station, and he just grabbed the nearest green nozzle and began to fill up his pickup truck. Problem was, that was regular gasoline. So he had to have some folks come out and drain his gas tank because diesel doesn't work in a gas engine. Gas doesn't work in a diesel engine. If you put the diesel of legalism into or self-righteousness in the car of obedience... Remember, the car of obedience is designed to run on grace. If you put the the diesel of legalism or self-righteousness in it, it doesn't work. You don't get anywhere. So, Christian, I want to ask you a question. What are you putting in your tank? Are you putting grace in your tank? There is an unlimited amount of grace to put in your tank. God longs to give it to you. Because he longs to see you grow in your enjoyment of him, in your obedience to him. Unbeliever, you have no grace to put in the tank. In fact, you have the wrong car. And you're taking that car, that's the wrong car, and you're pushing the car. Which is to say, you're trying in your own effort to make yourself acceptable to God. And I'm here to tell you, it will not work. God only accepts perfect righteousness. Your sin and your so-called righteousness doesn't make you acceptable to God. Rather, it condemns you. You're not walking on your own to heaven. You're walking to hell. And the truth of the matter is, is you need to have your sins forgiven and to have a righteousness that God accepts. And God accomplished both of those things in Christ. So, So how do I earn those things? You don't. You only receive them by grace through faith. And when you receive Christ by grace through faith, then you get the right car and a full tank of gas and a car that you can go back to that pump time after time after time and fill yourself up with grace. So unbeliever, if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, pushing that car is not going to get you anywhere. Coming to the point where you say, I have the wrong car and I'm trying to do this all the wrong way. That's where you start. You you fall upon the grace of God in Christ. And you say, Lord Jesus, save me. And I pray you do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of 1 Timothy. For Paul, for his, his dear brother Timothy. We thank you for the church at Ephesus. And all the glory that was yours in the time these people lived. Lord, we pray that this this sermon series has drawn us into a deeper relationship with you, that it's reminded us of how important the church is, how important for contending for right things in the church really is. 
We ask God that you continue to convict us, use this to convict us of where we may not be doing in the church as you would have us. So we're thinking that our own wisdom is better than yours. Lord, cut away, burn away the dross, purify us, that when you look at us, you may see the image of your blessed Son. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. If you would please stand. If there's a decision you need to make at this time, I encourage you to do so. Please be seated for just a moment. I want to give you a few prayer updates. Then we have a little bit of business to conduct. I want to remind you, those of you who are participating in the Pray For Me campaign, continue to pray. Be the prayer champion that you signed up to be. Um, I don't say that to uh, pour guilt on you or anything like that. If you drop the ball some days, pick it back up. Just keep running with it. Continue to pray. Addie Webster is on our prayer list, and uh, she was not able to have the treatment she was hoping to have last week. Her white blood counts were not, were not right. Um, Zach's grandfather, uh, Judge, um, has leukemia. Am I saying that right, Aaron? Is he still in the hospital or is he out? Okay. And they're working to clean his blood right now? Okay. That's what I had heard from your husband. Pray for Ben Campbell. Hopefully uh, soon he'll be in the nursing home at Lano. Um, so we'll be able to go visit him. This next week, our dear sister Candace on Thursday will have her surgery on her brain. If you haven't heard, she's got a, a tumor in her brain. It's called a schwannoma. It's, it's benign. They're going to go in and remove it. Um, so, so be sure to pray for Candace on Thursday. Uh, Denise, you want to update us on your brother's? All right, so pray for Porter, Porter Burke. And we also need to add Kirby Marek to our, our prayer list. Kirby is Sam's granddaughter. She's a cheerleader at the University of Houston. She did a backflip. She tore her ACL. So she's going to have surgery on the 6th? 7th. The 7th. So pray for Kirby. 
in the family. Any other prayer updates you'd like to pass along or anything that you need prayer about? Okay. Well, Ella, if you and your family would come down. Yeah, you got to stand up and walk down front in front of everybody. Ella's coming forward to join our church this morning. As you saw today, um, she made a profession of faith a few weeks back, um, and she was baptized today. And so she is coming to present herself for membership in our church. Um, I had the wonderful opportunity, um, I guess it was two weeks ago, to sit down and and talk to Ella and to uh, hear from her own mouth how she understood the faith, how she had placed her faith and trust in Christ Jesus for salvation. And uh, it was a joy, once again, to sit down with a member of, of Jared Brooks' family and to hear them faithfully recount what the gospel is, what it means, why they needed Christ. And so I, I'm here to say Ella Graves, she's most definitely a, a sister in the faith. And so we, uh, we want to receive her into our fellowship at this time. So, so Ella, um, you know, I talked to you when we were counseling about about how we covenant together as a church. And so as you come into our church body, uh, are you going to be willing to, to walk by that covenant, to, to live in, in unity uh, with this, this body of believers, to, to help us look out for one another, to love us, to pray for us? Are you willing to do those kind of things? She shook her head and I heard something rattle, so that's a yes. So church family, uh, are you com- will you commit to, to be in covenant with her, to pray for her, to love her, to help keep her on the straight and narrow in the Lord, uh, and to just long to see her become all that, that she can be in Christ? Amen. Amen. If we just have a motion to receive her into the fellowship, been moved by Jerry and seconded by Betty that receive Ella into the membership. All in favor say amen. amen. And that's everyone. Uh, If you would stand, we'll have a a word of closing prayer, and then you come by and welcome Ella into our church. Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are and for your work of salvation in Ella's life. All of us remember the time that we uh, put our own faith and trust in Christ Jesus. We remember our day of baptism, remember our day of joining the church. I'm thankful that once again, Lord, you've proved your faithfulness uh, to call to you those for whom Christ died. I pray for Ella uh, that you would just continue to grow her in the faith, make her look more like Christ Jesus, um, convict her of sin, fill her with truth in the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that our church would uh, look out for her and she would look out for us so that we would live in covenant with one another. Lord, we pray for those that are on our prayer list and especially lift up uh, the Burke family, Porter Burke, as he has received this horrible news. pray that uh, you would give him uh, grace and mercy comfort. We pray that you'd heal his body. Pray for those that are ministering to his needs, whether it be family or those in the medical field that are charting the best course of treatment for him. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And we say we pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Come by and welcome.